Hi, this is Alan Chartok. Joining us today is Joshua Rubenstein, author of Leon Trotsky, A Revolutionary's Life, now in paperback from Yale University Press and is at Amazon.com. Joshua Rubenstein was a staff member for Amnesty International USA from 1975 to 2012 and is a longtime associate at Harvard University's Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. Welcome, Joshua Rubenstein. Good to speak with you. Thank you. Well, Josh, I guess the question I have is, you know, when I interview authors, I always love to know why they wrote books. Of course, I think we all do. But the way to do that, it seems to me, is to find out something about them. Were you a Trotskyite? Who were you? (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. I began writing on Russian history uh, almost 40 years ago. Uh, I became fascinated by the Soviet human rights movement. I joined Amnesty International as a volunteer and then was hired to be an organizer. And this was at a moment when human rights were extremely prominent in the news about uh, the Soviet Union. We had the question of Jewish emigration. We had the famous cases of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was exiled in February 1974. Andrei Sakharov, the famous physicist and human rights campaigner, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1975. And I was writing book reviews and short essays. And then my initial book came out in 1980, which was the first general history of the Soviet dissident movement. And then I spent many years writing a biography of Ilya Ehrenberg, a very controversial Soviet Jewish writer. And so I was very committed to becoming a kind of freelance historian, an independent historian of Soviet history and Soviet Jewish history. And this led to my book on Leon Trotsky. I was actually asked to write the book by the editors of the Jewish Live series at Yale University Press. I felt very honored. I had not written a book about an official figure in Soviet politics. Ehrenberg had a quasi-official role in Soviet culture, but he was not a political figure per se. So this was a real departure for me and a real challenge, but I very much enjoyed doing the research and doing the writing. Did you find yourself associating with Trotsky, liking him, as a sort of revolutionary and as a guy who eventually, as we all know how it came out, how the story came out, you know, getting an accident ahead. Was he somebody that you found yourself attracted to? No. Let me be clear. Many people, of course, write about Trotsky either as his follower, and the most famous case was Isaac Deutscher, who wrote a very uh, magnificent, but in some ways, I believe, wrong-headed three-volume biography of Trotsky. It's a magnificent piece of history, but tends to be apologetic, even hagiographic in parts. What's the word? What's the uh, word? Hagiographic, meaning making him an idol, Uh uh, worshiping him, exaggerating the good qualities. And I believe he, Deutscher, ignored uh, the crimes that Trotsky was engaged in when he was leading the country with Lenin after the revolution in 1917. So I did not write the book as a follower. On the other hand, I did not write the book out of of any um, principled hatred or mistrust of Trotsky. Trotsky died in 1940. I was born in 1949. So I try to approach this with a good deal of, of objectivity, of some distance. Many of the issues that were at the heart of the controversies over Trotsky's life are long gone. The Soviet Union has disappeared. Uh, so I tried to approach the book with, with, I hope, a good deal of necessary objectivity. There are many things to admire about Trotsky. He was brilliant. He was a wonderful writer. He stood up against Stalin for many years with a great deal of courage. He and his family suffered egregiously. His children were killed. His brother and sister were murdered. Grandchildren disappeared. Uh, so, and then, of course, in the end, he was assassinated. On the other hand, I, I make very clear in the book, I hope, that 
Trotsky, with Lenin, was responsible for the rejection of democratic values when the Bolsheviks took power in the fall of 1917. And this is the crux of the tragedy that Russia then and the Soviet Union then underwent. The country came into the hands of these determined Marxists who wanted to remake the country according to their understanding of Marxism. And they were very determined revolutionaries. Nothing would stand in their way. They were ruthless. Trotsky was one of them. And he helped set up the very institutions. While he was in power between 1917, 1922, 1923, that Stalin then took to even more extreme and sinister purposes. But I think Trotsky's role in that history has to be recognized. Just so that everybody who's listening gets it, what brought the falling out with Stalin, not that you needed a lot, right. what was that about? Well, in 1917, first keep in mind the Bolsheviks did not take power from the Tsar. Nope. The Tsar abdicated in February of 1917 because of his incompetence, because he continued to prosecute the war. There was an enormous social revolution in the country. He lost control. He abdicated, and a provisional government took power. This was the most democratic government in Russia's history. In the end, it was led by Alexander Kerensky. But this government, too, was not up for, was not competent, not strong enough to meet the challenges of the war, World War I, and the social revolution that was sweeping across the Russian Empire. So Lenin and Trotsky returned to Russia under the provisional government in April and May of 1917. Lenin was in Europe, in Switzerland. Trotsky was actually in America. He was in America for several months, from January to March of 1917. But when the Tsar abdicated, he hurried back to Russia. And he reached Petrograd, today's Petersburg, in May of 1917, a few weeks after Lenin had already arrived. So they conspired together with other Bolsheviks and other revolutionary parties to overthrow the provisional government that took place in October of 1917, according to the old calendar. We now mark that anniversary in November. But gradually, as Lenin became ill and incapacitated, he had a series of strokes, the struggle for power, the struggle to succeed Lenin began in the spring of 1922. Stalin became general secretary. So he understood that the real power in the country lied within the party, within the, the Bolshevik party. And as general secretary, he then began appointing his own followers and slowly but surely getting rid of people who would not govern the country, who would not rule according to his own dictates out of loyalty to Stalin. Trotsky and Lenin were easily the most powerful people in the country and the most famous. But Trotsky had no base in the Bolshevik party. He had actually joined the Bolsheviks in the summer of 1917. He had been an opponent of, of Lenin for many years, very critical of Lenin. So he had no base in the party, and gradually Stalin took control. Stalin, of course, feared Trotsky. He was a Jew. He was very compelling speaker. He was far more charismatic. He was an intellectual. Stalin was none of those things. But in spite of that, Stalin understood how to gain control of the country. Trotsky did not. Trotsky was outmatched. This was the heart of their dispute. It later became very personal because Trotsky issued very strong statements against Stalin, which of course Stalin didn't like. Stalin was bloodthirsty. In the end, he not only took his revenge against Trotsky personally, but against his family, his children, his brother, his sister, his grandchildren. Really? He killed them all? Well, it's as if he took a family tree with the names on all the various leaves, shook the tree, and killed as many as he could. Uh, so by the time of Trotsky's death in August of 1940, 
His two daughters had died, one of tuberculosis, one of suicide. His one son was absolutely executed in Moscow, Sergei, his youngest son. And his older son, um, Lev, uh, died in Paris in 1930 under very mysterious conditions. Trotsky is, was sure that Lev had been poisoned to death. We cannot say for sure. He was ill. He did have surgery. But there's no question that by the time he died, all of his children were dead and other members of his family had also succumbed. You mentioned that, of course, Trotsky was Jewish. How important was that? Well, it was important in many ways. First, his real name was, was uh, Lev Bronstein, Lev Davidovich Bronstein, Lev the son of David. He took the name Trotsky, was not his first pseudonym. All the party leaders had pseudonyms. Lenin was Ulyanov, Kamenev was Rosenfeld. It wasn't out to camouflage his Jewish origins. He had to have a false passport when he fled Russia in 1902, and he fled Siberian exile. So they gave him a passport, and he filled in the name Trotsky, which was the name of one of his jailers. He had no idea that he would go down in history as Trotsky. He probably thought, you know, in another six months, I'll adopt a new name. But anyway, he, he, he's come to us as Trotsky. Uh, he was born to a Jewish family. He did have uh, some, uh, we'll call it religious school training, but he never developed any emotional connection to his origins. He did not know Yiddish, for example, he claims. He did spend his high school years in Odessa, which was a very Jewish city, very cosmopolitan city, but he was drawn to Russian culture, to broader Russian culture, rather than to anything particularly Jewish. And later in life, he would say, no, I'm not a Jew, I'm a Marxist revolutionary. But he always re reacted very vigorously to physical attacks on Jews, to the pogroms under the Tsar, to pogroms that took place during the Russian Civil War in 1918, 1919, especially in Ukraine. And he took deep exception when Stalin used Trotsky's Jewish origins against him. And when Trotsky used the family's name of Bronstein to discredit his son Sergei when Sergei was, Sergei was under arrest. Sergei went by his mother's name, Sidov, which was perfectly uh, legitimate and customary in Russia. But when he was denounced in the press, he was denounced as Bronstein, as a Jew. And Trotsky understood that this was a terrible thing to do and understood it had anti-Semitic connotations, which appalled him as a Marxist revolutionary, as an internationalist, that Stalin and his followers would resort to this. I think Trotsky was naive. Stalin would resort to anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, Trotsky took exception to that. When you talk about a Marxist revolution, of course, we all know that a lot of people have chosen to do their own interpretations of what Marxism meant. Were there major differences between what Trotsky meant and what Lenin meant and what Stalin meant as a, what it took to be a Marxist? Well, in some ways, they were in agreement. They all understood that, according to their understanding of Marxism, the revolution should first take place in Germany, which had a far more developed working class and factories. Russia was still a feudal society. The vast majority of people were peasants. It was Trotsky's innovation that said, well, maybe, in fact, the revolution should first come to a backward country, that we should have this bourgeois revolution and a proletarian revolution rolled into one. So that was Trotsky. That was Trotsky and Lenin. But Lenin's innovation was that you could have a conspiratorial party, a professional party of revolutionaries who would be the vanguard of this revolution because the proletariat would not be strong enough and wise enough and determined enough to organize itself to mount the revolution. You needed a party to represent the interests of the proletariat. That was their theory. And Lenin put it into practice, and Trotsky was wary of that. He suspected it. 
He, he felt it would lead to a dictatorship, and he said so in 1904 and 1905 when he split with Lenin. But then in 1917, they understood they needed each other to carry out this revolution. Now, the difference with Stalin in, in the point of view of theory was that Lenin and Trotsky believed you needed a, a revolution to take place in Europe to help this new revolutionary situation in Russia, that Russia would not be able to succeed on its own. Eh. It would be isolated by the capitalist powers. It would be too poor, too backward. It needed a revolution in Germany and elsewhere to lend its support. But when that revolution did not take place, there were attempts. Stalin said, no, we will succeed on our own. We will make socialism work in one country, in, the Soviet, in Soviet Russia, what became the Soviet Union. And Trotsky said, no, you need what we call a permanent revolution. We need these revolutions to take place in Europe. Well, from the point of view of history, Stalin was right. Uh, there was no revolution going, going to take place in Europe. So they had no choice but to consolidate and try to make it work in the Soviet Union, yeah, but, but Trotsky took but, it in an extremely extreme direction. But Josh, Trotsky was right also, if you think about it, because in the end it didn't work because of that one. Well, that's right. So yeah. in a sense, both were right and both were wrong. Mm. But I think realistically, Stalin in the end won the argument in the sense that most people felt dismissed Trotsky's views as too romantic. Uh, there were attempts at revolution in Hungary and Germany. They failed miserably. And so in that sense, I'm not defending Stalin, obviously, but that was one of the theoretical arguments that divided them in 1924 and 1925 and that Stalin used to discredit Trotsky. Talk to us about the German role in helping this thing get started. We've all read about this sealed railroad train in the car and all the rest of it. What were the Germans up to? Well, keep in mind that between 1914 and 1918, we had World War I in the Russian sure. Empire was an opponent of Germany. It was an ally of France and later the United States and England. But when the revolution took place, uh, Lenin and Trotsky had always been opponents of the war in general. They saw it as a useless slaughter. And I think they were right. So they wanted to get Russia out of the war. And so the Germans thought it would be useful to help Lenin return in this sealed train. It was really just one car. And they wouldn't inspect passports of the luggage. Trotsky came back separately by boat from North right. America. So the Germans wanted to help the Bolsheviks in order to get Russia out of the war. Then there'd be quiet on the Eastern Front and they could consolidate their forces on the Western Front against the French, the British, and then after 1917, the Americans. Woodrow Wilson joined the war uh, in March, April of 1917. The U.S. had been neutral until that point. Uh, so the Germans were happy to see the Bolsheviks go back. They were happy to see the Tsar abdicate, and they wanted to see Russia withdraw from the war. In the end, Russia did with the Brest-Litovsk uh, Treaty in early of 1918, uh, but by then it was too late for Germany to salvage its position against the Western Allies. Talk to us a little bit about Trotsky's career. In other words, he joins the revolution, he comes back from the United States, and he gets a series of important positions. Tell us about them and what he did in them. Well, Trotsky returns with Lenin. They become the preeminent figures in the Bolshevik party. They take power. Lenin actually asked Trotsky be, to first become the commissar for the interior, basically the head of the police. And Trotsky feels that a Jew doing that would be too provocative. Here we had a country where Jews have been excluded from civic life for a very long time. They did not have equal rights under the Tsar. And so there was a strong residue of anti-Semitism, and Trotsky said, no, that's not for me as a Jew. 
So, and Lenin was appalled at that. Lenin was not anti-Semitic, and in fact, he had a Jewish forebear, but he didn't know it. But he agreed with Trotsky, and he accepted Trotsky's reasoning. And so Trotsky first became Commissar of Foreign Affairs, the foreign minister. And he conducted the negotiations with the Germans that ultimately led to the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which took uh, the Russian Empire out of the war. But then you had the beginning of the Civil War, and Trotsky becomes Commissar of War. And this was his really most important role. Here's a guy who never went to West Point. He didn't go to Sandhurst. He was not trained. He'd never been in the army. But he, had, he was so brilliant. He was such a, uh, an organizer and such a compelling presence and speaker that he became the leader of the Red Army. And he made major decisions that helped uh, the Bolsheviks, the Reds, defeat their white opponents, the monarchists, and the interventionist armies by the Japanese, the British, even American units that were sent to Russia to oppose the Reds. In the end, uh, the Red Army won, and this was Trotsky's most important role in revolutionary Russia. What is surprising, uh, and I have to say surprised me, is that when the Civil War is over in 1921, Trotsky never assumes any other position of similar prestige and similar absolute, similar real genuine authority. Uh, he has no role in the party. He is a member of the Politburo, but gradually Stalin marginalizes him. Uh, he's not able to take power when Lenin uh, has a stroke and then dies in January of 1924. Uh, although he remains Commissar of War until 1925, basically he never exercises any real authority after 1921. Uh, and that really surprised me, but it's very clear from the historical record. Uh, that he's increasingly marginalized. He's still a compelling figure, he's writing, he's speaking, but gradually um, Stalin succeeds in marginalizing him to the point that uh, in 1927 he's expelled from the party, and in January of 1928 he's sent into exile, internal exile in Central Asia in Alma-Ata, and then in January of 1929 he, his wife, his son uh, Lev, are thrown out of the country to Turkey. Trotsky is exiled to Turkey. And of course, he never returns to the Soviet Union after that. So I want to know a little bit more about Stalin and his relationship to Trotsky. Stalin, as we suspect, at least I do, is a psychopath. So I wonder what the record tells you, Josh, whether it was philosophical with him or whether it was just a part of his ruthless character, his approach to his would-be competitor, Trotsky. Right. Well, First, it's not that I disagree with you that Stalin was a psychopath. I don't think a psychopath could lead a country for 25 years. He was bloodthirsty, he was ruthless, he engaged in mass murder. But from a certain point of view, there was a certain rationality to what he was doing, uh, in the sense that he wanted to consolidate power, he wanted to move the country in a certain direction that would undergird that power. Uh, he didn't want to lead a peasant country, he wanted an industrial power, so he engaged in collectivization. Of course, it was tremendously disruptive and resulted in the deaths of millions of people. So it was absolutely ruthless and bloodthirsty policy. But it succeeded in the sense that it did turn Russia into an industrialized, industrialized power that could create a strong military that, in that sense, after the German invasion of 1941, was able to uh, withstand the invasion with a great deal of help from the West and defeat Nazi Germany. None of that is said to defend Stalin, but it, that is simply how that history played out. 
When he did something like comb through the military, the generals, which, of course, led to a certain amount of chaos when they got into World War II, that isn't the act of a psychopath? Of course it's crazy. Of course it's crazy. But, it, but again, I'm not a, a psychiatrist, and I don't sure. want to get into an argument about semantics. Yeah, yeah, okay. Fair. You know, he wasn't a psychopath in terms of, you know, what he did during the day. He didn't kill people with his bare hands. He didn't strangle his children. Um, you know, he didn't drink the, the blood of babies. He was a ruthless dictator who would kill anyone who would challenge his, his thirst for power. Uh, so in that sense, he was crazy. Of course, it's irrational. And when you think of, of destroying the officer corps and tens of thousands of officers and generals and colonels um, for no good reason, on the eve of the war, he knew perfectly well there was going to be war. He may not have understood exactly when, but Europe was in deep crisis. And the idea that he would decimate the army in 1936 and 1937, and then, of course, the Germans knew this, the Germans were following developments in the Soviet Union very carefully. They saw Soviet incompetence in the Winter War, the war with Finland in 1939-1940, which encouraged uh, Hitler's confidence that Soviet defenses would collapse should Germany invade, and they did, because the uh, Soviet Union was not, re was not ready. Stalin was not prepared. So he miscalculated with Hitler. So that's what, what the historical record shows. The more I think about all of this, the more I think that in order to understand Trotsky, you really have to understand Stalin. Well, you need to understand the historical context. Both under the Tsar, Trotsky joins uh, the uh, revolutionary underground as a teenager, which was very common among young people, especially but not only Jews, because they were so marginalized, they were driven the revolution or to leave the country. I mean, my family left the Russian Empire over 100 years ago. Others stayed and became socialists or communists or revolutionaries. And they were very prominent in the revolutionary movement, not particularly among the Bolsheviks, but among the Mensheviks and the socialist revolutionaries. So that's what made Trotsky. But once uh, we had the revolution and Trotsky couldn't find his way uh, in this new revolutionary period after the Civil War, he never established a place for himself. And that has a lot to do with the conditions in Russia and with Trotsky's own personality. He was very haughty. He was very arrogant. He couldn't really sustain a following among people. People admired him, but they weren't close to him. Hmm. And so he didn't organize a base for himself in the country. And because he had this long-standing dispute with Lenin, and there were many articles and letters and essays in which he denounced Lenin, and Lenin had denounced Trotsky, it was very common in revolutionary circles to engage in that kind of rhetoric. Stalin then cherry-picked these quotations and used them against Trotsky. And Trotsky was helpless to defend himself. While he was brilliant and compelling, as Stalin simply outfoxed him. Do you believe the so-called autobiography of Khrushchev was real? Yes, yes, we have the tapes. Yeah. And the tapes have been transcribed, and his son was a witness to all that. His son lives here in New England now and outside of Providence. So there's no question the memoirs of Khrushchev are real. Doesn't mean everything he said is correct or historically true. He had his own axes to grind. But Khrushchev was a very interesting individual and did dictate his memoirs. Well, it seems to me, I read it a long time ago, enjoyed it thoroughly, but there was a quote, I think I remember, that just as Stalin was dying, his toe twitched, and they all got very scared. They were standing around there thinking that, oh my God, he's going to wake up because there were more purges they thought coming. Do you remember any of that? Yes, I do. In fact, my current project is I'm working on a book about the death of Stalin and the events surrounding his death. 
So Stalin had a devastating stroke on March 1st, which actually was 1953, which was the Jewish holiday of Purim. And he was at his dacha, and he was alone in his quarters, and the security guards would not go in unless there was a signal from Stalin. But no signal came, and so they were afraid. So for that reason, he had his stroke and lay there in his own urine for many hours, which of course made it all the more difficult to treat him once they realized what had happened. Eventually, medical care came, and Khrushchev and Barry and the other uh, leaders of the country gathered around him. And so every once in a while, he gained a certain semblance of consciousness, but he was paralyzed on one side. He could only raise, move one leg, one arm. He never came close to real consciousness, and then he died on March 5th. So yes, there was some fear, but once they, they understood he would never regain his health, his bearings, uh, they then had to announce to the world uh, what had happened, and he died a day later. How long was Barry in the game? Barry was in the game until uh, June of 1953. Yeah, but when did it when start? It started with Stalin's, uh, well, he, he, became, he was brought to Moscow in the late 1930s and succeeded uh, Yezhov and Yagada, Yagada and then Yezhov, who were the security chiefs who carried out the big purges. And Barry continued those purges and then was security chief during the war. And he had other roles. He was the administrative head of the atomic bomb project. Yeah. So he had a lot, Stalin had a lot of confidence in Barry. Barry was also a loathsome individual who was known for raping women, seeing women on the street, having his security agents kind of kidnap them for his own pleasure. So after Stalin's death, Beria, Malenkov, Khrushchev, Molotov took control of the country, but Khrushchev understood they had to get rid of Barry. He was simply too dangerous. Just give us a perspective here. Khrushchev was a bit of a thug, right? I would be very wary of using a word like thug. thug. Khrushchev had blood in his hands. They all did. They all engaged in purges to one degree or another. But Beria was the one who had engaged in personal torture, who had overseen the widespread purges. He was head of the security police. So he was far more engaged in these atrocities yeah, yeah. Than, than certainly Khrushchev. But they all had to sign various decrees that led to mass executions, without question. But Khrushchev, nonetheless, did not trust Beria. And so he maneuvered against Beria after Stalin's death in March 1953. And this resulted in Beria's arrest in the Kremlin. June. They called him into a room, right? And they called him into a meeting, a regular meeting. But they had prepared the meeting very well so that his security agents were not near him. Remember, he didn't have an iPhone where he could send them a message. There was no fax machines. There were no cell phones. Uh, they wanted to isolate him. And then they made sure that he didn't have any gun. And then a general came in and arrested him. And they had to spirit him away from the Kremlin outside of the sight of his own guards. And the military was very engaged in that conspiracy to arrest Beria. They then denounced him with all kinds of crimes which he had not committed. He was not a British spy. He had not conspired against the Soviet Union. But of course, they couldn't accuse him of the real crimes he had committed because they were all implicit. They were all um, yeah, involved mm. in those same crimes. So they engaged in, this, in the same kind of distortions that Stalin had done, calling him a British spy and all that nonsense. He, was put, he had a, secret, a quick secret trial in December and was summarily executed. And that was the end of Beria. He was the only major execution after Stalin's death. Some of his followers and some other major figures in the security forces were also executed. But that was the end of it. They didn't kill each other after that. 
when Khrushchev cashiered Molotov and Kaganovich and others in 1957, they all were shunted off to some minor positions. A hydroelectric dam for one That's of them. Right. That. Yeah. That's right. And so he treated them with respect. And they were afraid that he would treat them the way Stalin and they had treated their opponents. Mm -hmm their victim. But after Stalin's death, let's say the country moved from a carnivorous stage to a vegetarian stage. We are talking to Joshua Rubinstein, author of Leon Trotsky, A Revolutionary's Life. So let's go back to the beginning, if I can bring it all the way back, sure. although this stuff is so interesting. Talk to us about the Mensheviks. Sure. Well, you know, a, a party like the Social Democrats, and the Social Democrats was the general umbrella word for what became the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, they were very involved in theory and in, in what Marx meant and how this applied to Russia or Europe. Were we in a revolutionary situation? What is the proletariat? How large does the proletariat have to be? What kind of party should we organize? And so at the Party Congress in 1903, which is the second Party Congress, there emerged a split between the followers of Lenin and what kind of professional party should be organized to oppose the Tsar, and the followers of Martov, who was a very close colleague of Lenin's, a friend of Lenin's, who disagreed with how to go about organizing a party of conspirators. Lenin wanted to keep it very close-knit, and he wanted complete control in his own hands. Martov wanted a more relaxed party, a party with greater democracy and, and discussion within its ranks, and that would be open to more people. And so this became the split between the Bolsheviks, the party of the majority, and the Mensheviks, the party of the minority. In fact, the Mensheviks were a larger group of people. Mm, mm. But Lenin was very smart and understood that it would serve his purposes if it could be said that he represented a majority. And in Russian, Bolsha means more, Mensha means less. Mm. So Bolsheviks would be the party of the majority, Mensheviks would be the party of the minority. And so in the end, the Bolsheviks were, were a group that was considered far more ruthless, far more determined, less democratic. And the Mensheviks preserved certain democratic values, a regard for democratic processes. And this split, of course, emerged in 1903 and came to a very dramatic conclusion in 1917 with the uh, overthrow of the provisional government, the Mensheviks wanted to see a broader coalition government that would have greater democratic values. And Lenin and Trotsky said, no, we will take control of Russia. We will not have a democracy. We will run a more or less one-party state. And you Mensheviks are consigned to the dustbin of history. That was Trotsky's famous phrase when he dismissed Martov on the night of the revolution. Martov, the Menshevik. That's right. So tell us about Kerensky a little bit to get the mood correctly. Yeah, here. Alexander Kerensky yeah. was a, a famous lawyer in the Tsarist Empire, and he became a leading figure in the provisional government, but he made some very severe mistakes, including uh, having a military offensive against the Germans in June of 1917, which ended in disaster. And this um, consolidated uh, a great deal of opposition to the provisional government, which still held on in the summer into the fall. But in the end, Kerensky was simply too weak-minded. Uh, he would give great speeches, but he otherwise couldn't really lead the government. And so it was Kerensky's government that Leon Trotsky and uh, Vladimir Lenin overthrew in um, October of 1917. 
And they, let me just no, say, sure, Kerensky fled the country and then ended up living in New York. In the Bronx. Wherever. And yeah. <laughs> um, let me say that, you know, I went to Columbia between 1967 and 1971. And many people remembered seeing Kerensky. He'd give yeah. talks in New York. He'd give lectures and speeches. He'd always try to justify himself. And all these emigres would come to his talks and they'd stand up and shout at him, why didn't you arrest Lenin? Why didn't you arrest Trotsky? Put this whole thing to an end. And, you know, Kerensky had no answer to them. There were arrest warrants for Lenin and Trotsky in the summer of 1917. Trotsky was arrested. Lenin succeeded in hiding. But what was the real um, answer? He didn't have the guts, right? He wasn't he as didn't bloodless. have the guts, yes. and maybe he felt there were certain democratic procedures he had to abide by, but there were arrest warrants for these guys, and they were not carried out properly. History would have been very different. That's, a, that's something I really am in love with, that concept that you've just named. History would have really been very different. Do you think about if Trotsky had not been killed from that moment on, you know, clearly Stalin wanted him dead because he, he saw him as somewhat of a threat. I mean, well, let me say, yes. Alan, I, I know uh, there are only two people in the world who sincerely believe that Stalin and Tro that Trotsky was a threat to Stalin. Yeah, the, the Those two, two of people them. were Stalin <laughs> and, and Trotsky. Trotsky. <laughs> Trotsky was a marginalized figure. He had hundreds or thousands of followers scattered around the world. He had no army. He was living a very isolated existence. Um, at this point in Mexico City, he had followers, he had a secretary, a translator, his wife was with him, but he was a marginal figure. He was still writing, he was a figure of fascination, but uh, other than that, he posed no threat to Stalin. So why kill him? Because he symbolized opposition. Stalin was very thin-skinned. Uh, he didn't like the way Trotsky would denounce him, even though he defended the revolution, defended the Soviet Union, he kept denouncing Stalin. And Stalin simply had no patience for that. He always hated Trotsky. And so he killed him. But also... As simple as that was the logic. But also there may have been another logic, which is, you know, let anybody start up with me and they're going to get killed. Well, that was true for decades. Yeah. That was true once he took power by the mid-20s, late-1920s. You know, he started executing his rivals or people he thought were as, as his rivals in 1936, 1937, those who survived till then, communists and Oviaf, and then the party as a whole, and, and thousands and hundreds of thousands of others, millions of others. So there was nothing Stalin wouldn't do to hold on to power. So tell us about the murder itself. Well, <clears throat> Trotsky uh, reaches Mexico in January of... Um, 1937. He had been in Europe, first Turkey, then France, then Norway, and uh, he was being expelled from Norway, um, and uh, Diego Rivera in Mexico succeeded in, in uh, encouraging and convincing the Mexican government to welcome Trotsky. So he comes to Mexico City, and he actually lives in the home of Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, the Casa Azul, sure. the Blue House. And uh, they have a falling out, and by 1939, Trotsky moves to his own uh, compound a few blocks away, actually, in Coyoacan, a suburb of Mexico City. And it's, an, it's uh, as a bit of a fortress. It has high walls. He has bodyguards. But he knows he's always under threat. And in fact, in May of 1940, there's a group of people, about 15 people, who attack the compound in the middle of the night with machine guns. And they are led by the Mexican painter David Siqueiros, who had been a veteran of the Spanish Civil War. He was a Stalinist. The only injury that night was a, a bullet grazed the ankle of Trotsky's grandson, Sieva, known as, um, uh, as he now goes by Esteban 
uh, a Spanish name, Volkov, who was a 13-year-old boy. And Trotsky was also slightly grazed by some, by some glass. But he succeeded in you know, uh, hiding on, uh, under his bed. Uh, and uh, although there was a machine gun attack and they were trying to kill him, he survived. So they beefed up security uh, to prevent another similar attack. But Stalin always had a plan B. And plan B was to insinuate an agent into the Trotsky household who would find a way to attack him. And that's what happened. There was a guy from Spain who took up with a, a liaison with a woman whose sister was a secretary to Trotsky. And so this woman in New York uh, was seduced by this Stalinist agent. And then they traveled uh, to visit the sister in Mexico City. And this fellow was very charming, and he, he did errands for the Trotsky household and gradually gained their confidence so that Trotsky did not said that when this guy visits, you don't have to search him, which was stupid. The rule was, if you come to visit Trotsky, we search you. Mm. So this guy actually smuggled in an ice axe. It was not an a, a, a ice pick. It was an axe with a blade. And on the late afternoon of August 20th, when uh, he was asking Trotsky to read some papers of his, pretending to be a follower who was interested in Marxist theory. He then attacked Trotsky from behind. Trotsky was sitting at his desk and attacked him with his ice axe, thinking he could kill him quietly and then leave. But he injured Trotsky severely, but not enough. Trotsky got up, grappled with him, threw him to the ground, screamed. People converged on the room. Uh, Mercader, Ramon Mercader was the name of the assassin, was taken into custody, but Trotsky was mortally wounded. He was taken to a hospital and he died 26 hours later in the late afternoon, early evening of August 21st, 1940. Uh, there was a very large funeral cortege in Mexico City. His widow um, wanted to bring the body to New York where he could be uh, greeted by his followers, but the U.S. government would have none of that. Mm. So Trotsky's uh, was cremated and his ashes were buried on the grounds of that compound, which survives to this day. It's a very... It's a museum to Trotsky, and there's a large granite um, gravestone decorated with a hammer and sickle uh, right in the center of that compound. Let me say his grandson, Esteban Volkov, uh, grew up in that house, raised his daughters in that house, four daughters, two of whom are twins, and then he, he the, it was, uh, eventually became the property of the Mexican government, which maintains the, the property as a museum to Trotsky. Mm. What became of the assassin? Well, that's an interesting story. Uh, he never said anything. He would not divulge who he was. He would not divulge why he did it. Uh, he spent 20 years in jail. He was sentenced to 20 years. Uh, he got out. A plane was sent and brought him to Prague and then to Moscow, where in 1960, uh, he was secretly awarded government awards, personally by Leonid Brezhnev, who was a colleague of Khrushchev at the time. Sure. And then... Um, Eventually, uh, Mercader divided his time between Mox Moscow and Havana, and he died in Havana sometime in the 1980s, I believe. I don't remember now exactly. Fascinating. And to this day, there is an exhibit in the KGB museum to this operation to kill Trotsky, which he was a part of. Does the KGB museum, even after they defaced Lenin and took down the statue and everything? Oh, it still exists, absolutely. Yeah, 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 interesting. Tell us a little about Trotsky's women. Well, he was married twice. Um, his first, first wife, Alexandra Sokolovskaya, was uh, slightly older than he, and they were in the Marxist underground together. And they married 
partly because uh, this way, when they went into exile in 1899 as young people, uh, they could be together. Otherwise, they would each be very isolated. But once you were married, they had to send you off together. Uh, and they had two daughters in Siberian exile. And it was in 1902 that Trotsky heard about Lenin, knew that Lenin was in Europe, and wanted to rejoin him to be part of this new revolutionary party of professional conspirators. And his wife agreed. So he did not abandon them against her wishes. She agreed, she understood her husband was a genius and a compelling figure, and so he left her with the two children. He very quickly took up with another woman, uh, Natalia Sidova, uh, who was uh, not Jewish, uh, but also a, a revolutionary. And they had two sons, Levin and Sergei. They never officially married. He did not officially divorce his first wife. They had been married in jail by a rabbi, I should say in 1899 in a Moscow jail. Trotsky did have affairs. Uh, we know of two. Uh, one was with uh, Claire Sheridan, who was the first cousin of Winston Churchill, Whoa. who was a, ve a very accomplished sculptor. And she visited Moscow uh, after the revolution, 1920, 1921, and she, Trotsky posed for her, other revolutionary figures posed for her. And we have very good reason to um, believe that they had an affair. And then when Trotsky was uh, the commissar of war and on his famous armored car, uh, he was involved with uh, another uh, a woman journalist named Larissa Reisner, who was a very compelling beauty, uh, who later died of typhus several years later. But of course, we know he had an affair with Frida Kahlo when they were in Mexico in 1937. Trotsky's wife learned about this. They had a falling out. Uh, he actually had to go live somewhere else for a couple of weeks. We have their correspondence. Uh, Trotsky was also trying to seduce Frida Kahlo's sister. So he was a busy boy. Tell us about the famous yes. armored car. The armored car, if you've seen the movie Dr. Zhivago, right. uh, one of the characters, Strelnikov, you see him um, marauding uh, through the countryside on this armored car as he leads Red Army troops against the whites. This is inspired by the image of Trotsky. When Trotsky became commissar of war, uh, they controlled the interior lines. And so to go from one front to another, Trotsky was assigned a very dramatic, heavily armed uh, series of uh, train carriages. It had two engines. It actually carried a small plane. It had a military unit, it had printing presses, it had secretaries, uh, it had a parlor car for him. And this is how he traveled and led the troops. And uh, there's a great deal of documentation about his armored car. Uh, it went thousands and thousands of kilometers uh, during the time of the Civil War. And this is how he um, led the Red Army and organized the Red Army. It was a very compelling part of his, of his career, of his legacy. And this was the famous armored car. Huh. And back to the women, was there ever a time you think that Trotsky felt that because he had carried on the way he had, he had lost something? Uh, well, he did express some remorse to to his uh, to Natalia Sedova uh, in the summer, in, spring and summer of 1937, in the midst of his uh, affair with Frida Kahlo, he broke it off, and then the families, uh, the couples, resumed uh, socializing together. The breakup with uh, and the disillusionment with Diego Rivera had nothing to do with his personal relations with Frida Kahlo. It, we have no reason to believe that Rivera knew about it, although Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera were famous for their affairs, mm -hmm. but uh, Diego Rivera could be extremely jealous as well. He might have taken a gun to Trotsky, but that was not the base of their falling out. It had to do over politics and some politics uh, within Mexico, not so much 
over Stalinism. Uh, and in the end, Rivera reverted to being a Stalinist. And when uh, Frida Kahlo died, she was actually painting Stalin, which is appalling when you think that she had helped Trotsky come to the country. She had been involved with Trotsky. She had been socially friendly to Trotsky and his wife. And then when she died, she was, you know, making a tribute to Stalin. So these people were completely at sea politically. And Rivera in particular, he'd been a Stalinist, then he stopped being a Stalinist, became a follower of Trotsky, a helper to Trotsky, and then later he became a Stalinist again. So where's the logic there? Is there any sort of intellectual residue that we see in the world or in this country from Trotsky? Well, I don't see much, but let me say, I don't believe that Trotsky's you know, analysis of capitalism is going to be very helpful to what the challenges we face today. Stop right there, Josh. What is his analysis of capitalism that we should be aware of? Well, Trotsky believed that in the end, capitalism was a corrupt system, that it didn't provide social justice to everyone, that it benefited the wealthy. And of course, you know, we have a lot of discussion about that now. When you think of the Occupy movement, my book came out at a time when the Occupy movement was uh, very prominent in our newspapers, in our cities, and people asked me, what would Trotsky say? And Trotsky had no patience with romantic opponents of capitalism. He believed in heavy organizing and really challenging. But how did he differ from Marx in terms of capitalism as an evil? Well, keep in mind, they all understood and appreciated the dynamism of capitalism. And Marx had a great respect for capitalism and what it could achieve. But he questioned it's the justice involved sure. with it. And, I mean, people would ask me, what would Trotsky tell the occupiers? He would have said, join the Fourth International. Follow me. Because that was, he was very involved with his own ideas. And he would have seen what they were doing. He would have been sympathetic, but impatient with these kinds of symbolic gestures. But on the other hand, Trotsky was, uh, people should understand, Trotsky did not believe in terrorism. He did not believe in attacking government ministers, which the socialist revolutionaries were doing under the czar. Uh, he believed in organizing and taking control, obviously taking control of the means of production, ending private property, uh, certainly private property, the major industrial, uh, industrial plants, mines. In that sense, that was his vision of a socialist society. I don't think that has anything to do with the challenges we face today in modern capitalism or in the United States. The issues we face today, in my view, have to do with the power of corporations and certain inequality. And I don't think a Marxist solution is at all realistic or would be helpful. But I do think, just speaking for myself, that Trotsky says, yes, but you have to decide where does power lie and how do you oppose that Mm. power? And in that sense, he was very fascinated by the United States. He wanted very much to return to the United States from Mexico. He'd only been here for a few months from January to March, end of March, 1917. He was fascinated. He wanted to learn, study capitalism in America. He also thought he'd be safer here. And in that sense, I think he was right. He was more vulnerable living in Mexico City, uh, and he would have been safer living in New York. Not that Stalin wouldn't have tried to kill him here in America. It would have been more complicated. Josh Rubenstein, so when Trotsky comes to his full powers, did he blow it? In other words, should he have been more personally ruthless? Well, I'm not going to per se that he should have been more personally ruthless. I think in terms of, in the context of how best to oppose Stalin, he should have first understood what Stalin was doing. That Stalin was creating a base for himself in the Bolshevik party, which Trotsky did not have. And he should have had a more realistic view. He didn't know that? No. He should have had a more realistic view of what his own choices were as someone of so much prestige and power and authority in the country. 
that Trotsky thought perhaps that his reputation would carry him through. And Stalin understood that wasn't enough. The power lied within the party and the party apparatus. So how much of this was penchant for authoritarianism that has always existed in Russia that made Stalin the better fit? Well, of course, it's not only a question of uh, who would be a more effective or more ruthless authoritarian. One of my points in my book is not, people say, well, who was a better student of Lenin? Trotsky or Stalin, but to me the question is, was Stalin a student of Trotsky? Mm -hmm. Because he was taking over a country and the institutions that Lenin and Trotsky had created, the secret police, censorship, political trials, um, show trials, all those took place while Lenin was alive and Trotsky was with him in the Kremlin. So it was Stalin who took these institutions to, to a far more extreme and more sinister purposes. But it was Trotsky and Lenin who, and I say this repeatedly, rejected democratic values. So does that mean Russia never could possibly have democratic institutions? Well, the provisional government tried, it failed. Yeltsin tried after Gorbachev, he took power from Gorbachev in the 1990s. Obviously he failed because we now have an authoritarian government in Russia with certain democratic trappings, but very superficial. Mm. When the Tsar was wiped out and the family was wiped out, this was done by? This was Lenin's order in July of 1918, a year into the Civil War. Uh, the Tsar had been arrested and sent uh, to uh, an internal exile in Yekaterinburg in the Urals. Um, and uh, at one point, uh, white forces were nearing uh, Yekaterinburg, and Lenin was afraid that the Tsar could be uh, liberated. We have to tell people, there are some people who have never heard of the white forces, very sen right. simply in a sentence. Go ahead. Well, after the, after the Bolsheviks took power, they were opposed by those who supported the monarchy or who wanted to uh, simply oppose the Bolsheviks and work with the interventionary forces from Japan, from America, from Britain, to try to get the Bolsheviks out. So we give them the generic name, the Whites, kind of an umbrella name. And uh, some of those white forces neared Yekaterinburg, where the Tsar was a uh, prisoner and his family and retinue. And Lenin was afraid they could be liberated, they could be captured, they could, you know, and then that would become yeah. a symbol for the Whites. So Lenin made the order. There may have been a vote among the Politburo, Trotsky was not physically present, to uh, execute the Tsar summarily with his children, his wife, and his servants. And so they were killed in the basement of this building, the Yusupov mansion in Yekaterinburg in the middle of July 1918, and their bodies were destroyed. And of course, this led to speculation, and over the years, people would show up and claim to be this daughter or that daughter, and it was all fake. <laughs> sure. Now, Trotsky was not involved, as far as we know, either in the decision or in carrying out the executions. Trotsky always had a fantasy that the Tsar would be brought to trial and that he, Trotsky, would be the lead prosecutor. That was his fantasy. That's what he wanted to see unfold. Partly so, his romantic vision and his romantic vision of himself playing such a leading role. Uh, but that was not to be. The Tsar was executed summarily, brutally, and uh, as, as well as his family, and that was the end of the Romanovs. So as long as we're on the subject, those who would make Trotsky into a hero, what are their basic premises that lead to this? Well, you know, Trotsky was very handsome. He was a great orator, a masterful writer. He became this, you know, very tragic figure, expelled to Turkey, living in this isolated existence, under threat from Stalin. He showed great fortitude, great energy. 
So it's, it's easy to succumb to the allure of Trotsky, to see him as the great alternative, that Russia would have been vastly different, vastly better. And that's simply an exercise in counter history. Mm -hmm. You know, I, have a, I found a wonderful quotation from George Orwell. Uh, 1939, where he writes that, yes, Trotsky had a in more interesting mind, uh, but we shouldn't ha have this romantic illusion that if he had become dictator instead of Stalin, things would have been really so much better, so much different. Because as Orwell said, the real issue is democracy. Once you reject democratic values, Stalin or someone like Stalin is inevitable. Trotsky rejected democratic values. Would he have taken the country in as extreme a direction as Stalin? I doubt it. He wouldn't have killed the officer corps. He wouldn't have carried out the same kind of, of widespread purge of the, of the Bolshevik party, the Communist Party. I don't see any reason to believe that. But it would have been a dictatorship nonetheless. If Trotsky, instead of Stalin, I know this is ridiculous, had been the leading force in Russia during the Second World War, do you think he had the stuff, the cojones, to win a war, which clearly Stalin did with all his ruthlessness, would Trotsky have been able to do that? Well, I think a more germane question is what he would have done if he had been head of the country uh, in the late 20s, early 30s, when the Nazi party was emerging uh, into power in Germany. Uh, Stalin made a very stupid, uh, self-defeating decision to split the left. Uh, and to denounce the Social Democrats as social fascists. So the Communist Party did not work with the Social Democrats, the socialists in Germany. Trotsky understood this was a tragic mistake. And I think it's fair to say Trotsky would have, had it been up to him, ordered the Communist Party of Germany to work with other liberal leftist parties to oppose Hitler. And that could have made an enormous difference. That, to me, is a more realistic question then, you know, could Trotsky have led the country successfully during World War II? He was a far, he'd already proven his military chops during the Civil mm. War. So I think we can trust him if he had been the leader of the country, but that's simply an exercise in counter history. Sure. And, uh, you know, uh, Stalin made such terrible mistakes allowing Germany to invade, to invade, taken by surprise in June 41. Would, would Trotsky have been How so could have somebody so paranoid have done that? Well, you know, he miscalculated. He trusted his, Solzhenitsyn once, once said, right or wrongly, that Stalin trusted only one person, Hitler, and Hitler betrayed him. But Stalin understood the country wasn't ready for war. And he knew what had happened in the war against Finland in 3940. He knew mm. Germany had a much more a stronger, powerful military. He did everything he could to stay out of the war until the Soviet Union was ready. But, but Hitler had his own calendar and invaded in June of 41, and Stalin wasn't ready. The Red Army was not, and that was true. They weren't ready. So anyway, we're out of time. I could be going on with this for another three hours, Josh Rubenstein, and I so thank you. You're so smart. We've been talking to Joshua Rubenstein, author of Leon Trotsky, A Revolutionary's Life, now in paperback and available at Amazon.com. Joshua, I've always wanted to know more about Trotsky, and now I know some more. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Alan Chartok. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.